Father, once again we come to you as we come to your word. We have lifted up your word, singing through the Psalms and reflecting on your nature. And now we, uh, we're going to do a little reflection on the scriptures and um, a complicated, not easy to answer question. And we ask that you would be glorified in what we say and we do. And uh, may your name be exalted above our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to invite you to turn. Um, for some of you this may be a familiar passage. For some of you, you may have never heard it. Um, we're going to turn to the book of Romans um, in chapter 6 uh, to answer this question. Um, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul wrote this book um, to the church in Rome in anticipation of, of being able to visit them. He did not start this church. Um, it was one of the churches, that, it's the only letter that he writes to a church that he did not, was not involved in starting it. Um, and, uh, and the Romans had apparently had some very specific doctrinal questions. And so in the book of Romans, Paul builds a, a, a very, very robust um, theology of sin and forgiveness and redemption and the role of the church in that, um, how all this works. Uh, and, and I really don't have the time to get into all of it. So let me just tell you that um, Romans, Romans is a very, very coherent book. Um, but it is written at a very high level. If I had to refer to, if I had to put a grade level to Paul's arguments in Romans, I would put it somewhere in the master's degree level uh, of his arguments and his doctrine. It's a very, very intricate book. And so it's also very easy to get lost in it um, because he does a lot of these Greek rhetorical things. He says, the things that I would, those I don't do. The things that I wouldn't do, those I did. So um, I find in myself a law that I do the things that I'm not supposed to do when I'm trying to do the things that I should do. And you sit there like, I don't know what you're doing. All right. Um, so I want to look, but I want to take a look at a passage, at this passage, chapter six, because I think Paul addresses the nature of this question, which the question is really, how far does grace go? How far does forgiveness extend? Where is the line where God's forgiveness ends? And so I want to read chapter six, and then I'm going to, um, deal with the themes of it and hopefully, um, spark a conversation about this, about the nature of sin and forgiveness. So Romans chapter 6, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By, by no means. Um, the, the Greek here actually means um, may it never be so. Don't let it happen. It's actually the reverse of the word amen. Amen means it is true, it must be. Um, the Greek here actually means may it never be true. So it's like the anti-amen. That's actually how, Logan, write that down. That's how I'm going to translate it, anti-amen. That'll really confuse people. Um, how can we who die to sin, I've just nominated Logan as my secretary. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk 
in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, our old man, is actually what the, the, word, uh, the Greek word is, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has, sin, who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And if you're a person that marks your Bibles up, um, take that verse and circle, highlight, underline the phrase, in Christ Jesus, because you are not dead to sin in your own ability or alive to God in your own ability. It is only in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. But what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been free, set free from sin, you have become slaves or servants of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because, you're, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were loose. You were unbounded. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become servants or slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you're, you're used to being in church, this next couple of minutes um, may not be useful to you, um, but, but uh, we come from all different places. I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. I want to first give you a definition of the word sin. Um, because sin gets, um, gets all over the place. People talk about, you know, sin and what it actually means. Um, sin 
and I'm going to give you a very straightforward kind of theological, um, uh, one of Ariel's roommates coined the term Ericsplain. Um, so I'm going to Ericsplain this um, because I always have these weird kind of definitions to things. Um, so sin is anything twisted from its natural purpose to do something else. You say, no, no, sin is the bad things we do. No, 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 nope, nope, nope. Don't think of sin as a list of bad things that we can have a checklist. We go, just as long as we don't do these things, we don't sin. Sin is any time something that God created is twisted to serve a purpose other than the purpose he created it for. What is lying? It is taking words created by God to convey truth and twisting them. What is stealing? Stealing is taking things that God gave to someone else and giving them to myself. What is lust, envy, greed? It is looking at what God has given me and what someone God has given someone else and saying, I want their thing. What is sexual sin? Sexual sin is taking something that God gave us and twisting it for our own purposes. Anytime, so this is why you can't make lists of sin. I'm not, like, you can't make an exhaustive list of everything that is sin. Because sin is anytime something God created is twisted to its own purposes. Twisted for Satan's purposes, my purposes, it doesn't matter. It's something that God created that's been twisted away from its purpose. Now, in Greek, the word hamartia, which is the word for sin, it means missing the mark. All right? You take a, you know, a bow and you shoot it and the arrow doesn't hit the target. Hamartia. Sin. But ultimately, why did it miss the mark? Because when it was named correctly. It was away from its intent. What is the purpose of, a, of an arrow that you shoot? It's to hit the target. So if it's not hitting the target. So this is, this is a simple definition of sin. You say, and, and so this is when, when I talk to people about sin, and I say, well, you know, and I, I, I jokingly talk about telling people, what are you doing that's sin? Well, people like to go down their list, right? They like to go down the Ten Commandments and go, well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this, therefore I must not be doing sin. Do you know that it can be a sin um, in your head to twist the purpose, to um, twist things so that they're to your advantage? You know that, all right, half the congregation may not want to listen to this. Do you know that not listening to everything your spouse says can be a sin? Because they're aiming words at your face. And you are, they're ending at a force field that your mind has projected and you're only hearing what you want to hear. You know, that's, that's a phrase. I get that from my wife. My wife is always talking, I miss your face. She says that um, in videos to her friends. And so I started to think of her talking to me as aiming words at my face. Now, I know that that sounds like a weird thing. But my wife will tell you, my posture usually when she is trying to talk to me, I'm usually... So I have to remind myself she is aiming words at my face. (laughs) All right? Um, 
And I'm trying to be more intentional about that. But you know, not listening, that, that's a sin. You say, well, that's not a sin. That's not in the Bible. There's no 11th commandment says thou shalt not, thou shalt listen. All right, that's not in there. It's not about the list. It's about taking something that is good that God created and twisting it. Um, so now, what about grace? What does the word grace mean? I mean, we talk about, you know, a figure skater's graceful. That was the most ungraceful thing you've ever seen, right? <laughs> No one wants to see this body doing gymnastics. Um, but we talk about a, a graceful dancer and all this. What does, it, what does grace mean? The word grace, um, it has a lot of things, but it's actually rooted in the word gift, the idea of a gift. Grace is when I receive something I don't deserve. Okay? Now that's just the textbook definition of grace. I would actually argue that when we're talking about grace with God, it is uh, not just receiving something I don't deserve, it is receiving something I could never deserve. See, sometimes we can give somebody something that they deserve, right? But they don't think that they're worthy of it. Oh, thank you so much, you know. Um, You know, but I don't really want this, you know. Grace is not that. Grace is um, me receiving something I could never earn, I could never deserve, I could never gain. And see, here in the root of this passage, as Paul talks about um, the questions he asks, so in verse 1, he asks the question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, are we allowed to continue to twist the nature of things to our own purposes, to the purposes of Satan, to the purposes of whatever? Are we continue, allowed to continue to view the world through um, this sinful way of viewing things? So, because grace, that allows grace to be completely full. That, that, it's only, that grace only exists when I sin. So, so it's, it's good that I have grace because when I sin, you know, Jesus covers my sin. And inherent in our thinking about sin and grace is an error. It is an error. It's, it's one of those things that happens to us because it is really hard for us to see the world the way God sees the world. As much as we don't like to admit it, and, and we all do it at different scales, and we might as well just get used to it, if we, if we were to draw the world as a circle, right, and we were to point at the center of that circle with everything orbits around, in our natural sinful state as human beings, we put ourselves at the center, and we put God kind of on the outside, and He comes in when we need Him. See, we as human beings, we tend to think of our salvation and God's grace and his love and his forgiveness this way. I am 85 or 90% pretty decent. I'm pretty okay. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Jesus is the only one that's perfect. We go through that whole list. But I'm, I'm pretty okay. I've got, I got most of my stuff together. And what I really need from Jesus, the reason I asked him to be my savior, is because I just needed that top off, that 15, 10% of righteousness to be good enough for God. I, I, I'm pretty good on my own. I mean, I mean I'm not, you know, I, I, I look around, there's some people that are like, their meter's like 45, 50%. They need a lot of Jesus. I just need a little Jesus. 
I just need enough Jesus to get me to even, to 100%. And we tend to think of it this way. I, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty decent, pretty good, and, and we, we just need a little Jesus to get over the threshold. All right. Every time I say that, all I can think of is this one sermon. Dan Kimball was a pastor um, out in California. He had a, a bobblehead Jesus, and he had an Ask Me Jesus. I've told you guys this before. His Ask Me Jesus was a Jesus like a magic eight ball, and it had answers. Like you shook it, you said, Jesus, should I love my neighbor? And you turn around, it would say, smite them. Or <laughs> my personal favorite, I'll ask my dad. Um, so when we talk about people having, just needing a little Jesus, that's the image in my mind. We just need a little bit of Jesus to kind of level the, the, level me out, so, level me up so that I can get into heaven, so I can be a Christian, I can be a... When Paul describes us in chapter 6, how does he describe us? He describes us as not almost, almost there, he describes us as dead. I don't know if you know this, but dead things are not alive. Despite Princess Bride, there is not something called mostly dead. You are dead or you are alive. It is a binary situation. You cannot be both of them at the same time. You are one or the other. And there is not a a gauge. Now, as a pastor... I have been at enough deaths to tell you there is a moment when they are alive and there is a moment when they are dead. It, it, is, it is one of those strange things about nature, about human beings. We don't, we don't kind of gray out. We are alive and then we are dead. It, it's, a, it's, it's a binary situation. And the way that Paul describes us in our sin, he calls us dead, he calls us slaves, he says we're dragging around an old man. Again, images in my mind, I see myself, and I know this is wrong and politically incorrect, but my brain is weird, dragging my dad around by a rope. Just saying, it says your old self, that's why they stopped saying old man, because you don't want to have images of people dragging their dads around. Um, but we're, we're basically, we are, we are dead. Our slavery to sin makes us dead. That means, guess what? We're not 85% righteous waiting for God to fill in the 15% through Jesus. We are 0% righteous on our own. Now, some of you may not like that. I'm sorry. That's a reality. The most holy, wonderful, pious, religious person in the universe without Jesus is 0% righteous. You say, but the 0%. How about 0%? Now, unfortunately, the theological term for this The words have shifted. The theological term for this position is total depravity. What a terrible word. Because the word depraved um, has come to mean perversion and twisting. That is, um, that's not actually the meaning of that term. And somebody needs to invent a new term that everybody can take um, and use. But the idea is that I have nothing in me that can righteous or holy me. 
Now, grammatically, that makes zero sense. You can't righteous and holy. But listen, if y'all can Google an adult and all these other words that are being turned into verbs, I can righteous and holy. All right? I don't want to adult today. You mean behave like a grown-up? Stand up. All right. Um, I don't like to adult. I can't stand that word. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't, I don't like, I don't like using that word. It's just, it's a vague. It's very implicit in my, in my rhetoric. I can't holy myself. I can't righteous myself. I can't be good enough and then hope for Jesus to give me a little bit more. I start as a sinner and then the scriptures say, in verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I want to make sure you understand, in verse, 15, uh, verse 19, when he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, that clues us in that what Paul is doing is he is trying to use something we can understand to teach us something that is way more complicated than we can understand it. And I don't mean that some academics have figured it out. I think that Paul, when he says that, he says, I, can, I have a sense of what God does when, when Jesus' um, righteousness enters our lives. I, I, I can illustrate it to you this way, but this is not the whole definition. There's something bigger. There's something powerful. There's something mysterious happening here. But what Paul does say, um, because we are dead in our sins, right? When we put our trust in Jesus, when we are united with Christ, we are raised from the dead because he was raised from the dead. And we no longer are slaves to our death. Now, what does that mean? We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer um, servants to our death. And Paul puts those ideas in parallel, death and sin. It means, um, I know this is going to sound really profound. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are no longer dead, you are alive. In other words, you are no longer dead. You are alive. And living people should not act as if they are dead. The actions of a living person are different from the inactions of a dead person. Isn't that profound? Isn't that deep? Sin is dead. You are alive. So, since I am alive, and I am alive because of grace. Right? So, I was dead in my sins. And I'm, he talks about, he says, you are, you're under grace in verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, 
but under grace. He says, so Jesus, you, are, you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You're united with Jesus. And so you are brought into life. And so sin no longer has dominion over you. And so, no offense to the person that asked this question, but the, the question that we started with starts at the wrong place. It starts at the question, where is the boundary between um, my sins being covered by grace and forgiveness and my sins not being covered by grace and forgiveness? Where is the line? And I would actually argue that argument, looking for a line where grace stops, is putting myself in the center and saying, how far can I go before I outstrip the eternal, omnipotent God's grace? Now, the person that asked that question, they may put, you know, and I'm not saying the person that wrote the card. I'm saying the person who, in practical terms, goes, how much sin can somebody do before God no longer forgives their sin? That question fundamentally says... There is something in me that is mostly saved, that Jesus covers a little bit of me, but I could potentially outstrip Jesus' influence on me. Now, it's a good thing we can't outlove Jesus. When when you put your faith and trust in Christ, Christ covered your sin. He forgave it. The Bible says He moved it as far as east is from the west. He, he cast it into the depths of the sea where no one can go and get it. And that doesn't mean all the sins up until that point. And then you've got to work on it afterwards. But rather, you have been forgiven. But here's the deal. It is one thing for God to forgive me. It is another thing for me to accept His dominion of grace. His rule. That's why the Apostle Paul says in verse 13... Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God. Now, here's where this image comes from. And I'm going to leave you with this. It's something the Romans would have understood. When a man in Rome could not pay his debts. When he could not feed his children when he could not provide for his family. He would find a patron. He would find a rich man. And he would bring all that he is, his members, his family, his household, and he would go to that rich man and he would fall on his knees and he would say, I will be your slave. The greatest dishonor in the Roman world was not to be a slave. It was to be a poor man who could not feed your children. 
could not take care of yourself. And so you would go and you would find this patron and you would throw yourself before him and you would give him your life and the life of your children and the life of your wife. You would place them all under his power and dominion and you would become his servants. You would become a part of his household. You would operate according to his rule. Under Roman law, he had the power of life and death over your family. He could sell your children to pay your debts. He could uh, adopt your sons as his own. He couldn't, ironically, he couldn't marry, he couldn't divorce you from your wife. The Roman law had some provisions, but you were totally and completely a slave. Now here's the great thing. When you were a slave of sin, Paul says, you were dead. So Jesus died for you. Jesus went where no other Savior would go. He took death on himself. And then, whether you like this or not, I happen to be a fan. Three days later, he simply stood up and said, death has no control. No dominion, no power over me. And you were slaves to death, and now you're mine. So present your members to me. Come and serve me. Give me everything. I can take all of you, all of your sin, all of your brokenness, not the 85% that you think is pretty good. I am willing to take the most debased parts of you, everything about you. I take you into my household and I make you part of my thing. You're under my dominion. You're under my power. You're under my grace. And under that, you just keep presenting yourself to me and I will keep transforming you. I will keep renewing you. I will keep forgiving you. I will keep empowering you. You will be mine. And we as Christians have a hard time accepting that it's not my sin that defines my relationship to Christ. It is His grace that defines my relationship to Him. And we stumble and we fall and we, we get on our knees and we go, God, did I go too far this time? And he says, well, stop sinning, but get up and keep learning. Keep growing. Keep becoming better at being a Christian. Keep presenting yourself to me. Keep loving. Keep devoting yourself. Keep emptying yourself of ego and desire. Keep identifying the things that you have twisted in your life and retwist them because I'm now your owner and I'm never going to let you go. For the wages of sin is death. You serve sin, the only thing you get, twisting and brokenness. You say, but it feels so good. But it's broken and it's wrong. The part that feels good is broken and wrong. How many of you ever had one of those friends that like to put their fingers in the candles? 
Like, <laughs> 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 I just looked at him. I'm like, there's something wrong with you. That's, you're not supposed to do this. Like, ah, I don't even feel it. You should see a doctor. If you can't feel a candle on your fingers, you've got neuropathy, which is rough on a 13-year-old. You should probably go get that treated. Um, I used to, you know, I do martial arts, and people are like, yeah, that didn't even phase me. I'm like, are your nerves broken? Because you got hit pretty hard. I mean, not, you know, like, oh, I kicked these boards. I mean, I'm, I don't do a martial art that kicks boards because I don't think I'm ever going to get attacked by pine. Um, like, oh, it's so impressive. You jumped 45 feet in the air and kicked a board. I'm like, why? Anyway. The parts of us that love sin, they love sin because they don't know what it means to be alive. Those things need to be renewed. We need to present those things to our, to him. But so often... So often, we want Jesus to just give us the top off and say, most of what I'm doing is okay. I don't want him getting down deep. I I just need enough forgiveness. I just need enough grace. You are dead without him. You see, that's so morose. No, it's not. I am so thankful that I don't have to rely on my own righteousness. I am so thankful that I don't have to rely on your righteousness. I can instead trust my master. I opened this service with the 23rd Psalm. When we did communion, I said, He lays the table before us in the presence of His enemies. And Jesus stands at the table we who have presented ourselves to him, we sit at his table and he stands behind us and he says, these are mine. And all we have to do is be willing to admit that to ourselves and to him, I'm his. You say, how far do I push forgiveness? Stop asking that question. Start accepting How deep can he change me? Would you join me in a word of prayer? We say it all the time, Jesus, but this is not about us. This is about you. We judge, we judge ourselves, we judge others, we have standards and basis, and we drive and we push. But ultimately, all holiness, all righteousness comes from you. We we try to live on the edge of your forgiveness. Help us to present all of us so that it penetrates to the depths of our being. And Father, for those here who are still exploring, Lord, may your spirit be at work in their hearts and their lives, that they might come to a place where faith is enough. And they say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to present myself to you. Heavenly Father, may your grace 
which is all-pervasive, fill our lives. Forgive our sins, transform our desires. Help us to always rest in the reality that you are our master. And not our sins, not our brokenness, not our our own self-judgment, not our own guilt, not our own passions, but you. We pray this, Jesus, by your name, in your Holy Spirit, to your Father. Amen.